Well, how much is a human life worth? What lengths would we go to in order to save a human life? Well, quite recently, during the month of May, in the Amazon of Colombia, there were four children lost in the jungle. You might have heard about this on the news. They, they were aged 13 years down to 11 months, just a little baby, four of them in the jungle unsupervised. These four kids, well, sadly, they were in a small plane that crashed and the three adults that were on board uh, died in the crash. And so they found the wreckage about two weeks after, but the kids were nowhere to be seen. So the government coordinated this huge search effort, 160 soldiers and 70 indigenous people involved in this search for these four kids in the jungle. So they had soldiers trekking through the jungle and shining bright floodlights at night to try and attract the children's attention. And they also, from an aeroplane, dropped some care packages and and they actually dropped 10,000 leaflets across the jungle with you know instructions about how to survive in the jungle and, and stay where you are, we'll come find you. In all of this, we see that there's clearly this high value of high value placed on the human life in our world, and rightly so. We go to great lengths to save a life. Now, the Amazon might feel a bit distant, uh, but any any parent or anyone who's looked after children would know or, or could imagine at least that the stress, the, the worry, the concern when a, a child goes missing... So I'll never forget the time I lost Zach at a park, my now three-year-old. We were with some friends on a holiday, spending, spending the morning at a big playground, and Rachel and the other mum had gone with the babies to the bakery to buy lunch for us. And so the dad and I, the other dad and I, were with the four remaining kids at the park. Zach was happily playing in the sand pit, so I turned and turned to help one of the other kids with something and turned back at... He's gone. He's not there. He, he's not there where he was just after. Oh dear. And so as the seconds go by, that you, sh- you should be able to imagine the dread kind of creeps up and I'm just getting more and more panicked. I've lost our two year old in this bustling park on a sunny morning. So I, you know, start calling out for him, anxiously looking around, marching around. I, I head towards the road to make sure he hasn't gone that way. I'm desperately praying that I'll find him soon. Well, it's right to have this kind of concern for the children in our care, isn't it? But not just children. It's right to place enormous value on human life and welfare. But I wonder, how does it compare to the value we place on the soul? What lengths would we go to for the salvation of a soul? Do we send out search parties to those who have wandered off? Or how do we pursue those who we see might be beginning to drift away or have struggles? How much are their souls worth to us? Well, in this little parable, it's only a few verses, we see the great concern of God for each one of his flock. I'll be speaking mainly from those verses 10 to 14 on the parable, but but I will refer to the early verses, which is why we had them read out. Now, you might notice that it's a similar parable to 
the parable in Luke chapter 15, but it's not quite the same. It's a different audience, a different context. It uses different words and details, so it's probably a completely different situation, different occasion. So let's listen in to what Jesus is teaching us in this parable just here. And and it's framed around a command. So first we'll look at the command in verse 10 and the reasons why. And then lastly, we'll think about what it means for us. The command, the reasons why, what it means for us. That's where we're going today. The outline might help you follow along if that's helpful. But please also keep your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 18. Let's have a look. Come with me to verse 10. So Jesus commands his disciples... See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, although you can't tell in English, the command is plural. It's a a use, you all. He's saying this to all his disciples. All of you, see that you do not despise these little ones. This is to be a, a group effort by God's people. But who are these little ones, we might ask? Well, this is where it helps us to look back at the start of chapter 18. This is where we see that he's addressing the disciples who are asking, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God, of the kingdom of heaven? And to their surprise, Jesus tells them that they actually need to become like a child to enter the kingdom. And then that they need to humble themselves, in verse 4, like a child to be great in the kingdom of heaven. This is the topsy-turvy kingdom of God that Jesus speaks about, where where the first shall be last, the last shall be first, and here, the smallest or the lowliest will be the greatest. And this is where in verse 6, the next verse, it introduces the phrase, one of these little ones, one of these little ones, those who believe in me, he says. And that's what we find in today's passage. So, So while these little ones would definitely include children, I don't think it's only talking about children. Jesus says that for anyone who wants to enter the kingdom, they must be like children, taking a posture of humility. And this actually has something to say to each one of us. To enter the kingdom of God, to be great in the kingdom of God, we must see ourselves as little ones. Not not as the most important person in the room, but rather as one grateful to even be included. Not, not as the best player in the team, but like a, like a beginner or a novice being carried along by his teammates. So I take it that Jesus is using this phrase, little ones, to talk quite generally about his disciples who have humbled themselves, but particularly also to those who might be despised or, or looked down upon by others as children were in his day. Jesus says that we mustn't despise anyone, any of his disciples, any of his people, even if they appear insignificant. And so, like children were overlooked a lot in those days, and even are today in some churches, we can thank God for for Betty and, and others who serve the kids here at DPC. But it does go beyond them. There are a whole variety of little ones, we might think, that might get overlooked or looked down upon in our church. Perhaps the the socially awkward one who doesn't seem to fit in or have many friends here. 
the one standing alone at morning tea time or lunch, the, the boy or girl who hasn't got anyone else in their year group here at the church or even from their school. Jesus commands that we don't despise, rather we welcome every, every member of his community, especially those that might be looked down upon by others. So later we'll think a bit more about what this means for us, but first let's consider the reasons why that come up. Why not despise? Have a look continuing on in verse 10. Well, Jesus says, For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. We've come across a tricky phrase, a tricky idea. Their angels in heaven. It's tricky because it's not really talked about much elsewhere in Scripture. So firstly, let's just think about angels generally and who, who they are, what they are. Well, we see across the Bible that angels are heavenly beings which God created to further his purposes in the world. God actually sends them to help and serve us, God's people. That's, that's what it says in Hebrews chapter 1. And we might be most familiar with them as God's messengers, like the angel Gabriel coming to to Mary, the mother of Jesus, but they also carry out God's purposes in other ways. You might remember last year in Acts chapter 12, an angel releases Peter out of prison when he's been locked up there by Herod. But what could it mean for particular angels to be their angels, angels of the little ones, and seeing the face of the Father in heaven? Well, there are a few, few different things that have been suggested. Some think it refers to the spirits of these little ones after they've died and gone to be with the Lord. But this, this verse is talking about now. Now their spirit, their, the angels see the face of the Father in heaven. And angels doesn't usually mean spirits of a believer who's died. Hmm. Others, others think it's an idea of guardian angels which you might have heard of before. The idea that each individual believer has a particular angel that's their angel watching over them. But that idea doesn't really come up much in the Bible either. So I think the most likely explanation seems to be that some angels are particularly representing these little ones in the throne room of God and bringing their situation before him. There are several examples in in Revelation, for example, where there's an angel representing a group of people. To give a sports analogy, it, it might, you might think of it as zone defense rather than man-on-man defense in the guardian angel's idea. Well, anyway, as, as all of the, all angels are ministering spirits sent to serve the whole of God's church, some angels in particular are serving these little ones, bringing their, their case before God, their situation. And so the main point here is that the infinite God in the heights of heaven is aware of and concerned for the smallest and lowliest of his people. The little ones matter to God. Each one of you, your situation matters to God. He is not distant from your difficulties. So Jesus says, do not despise them because their angels always see the face of God in heaven. That's the first reason why not to despise them. And the second reason why not is is the parable that we've all, all been waiting for, where every single one is precious to God. 
It's a parable about a shepherd who employs some rather strange techniques to look after his sheep. Let's have a look in verse 11. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Jesus poses this rhetorical question with the implied answer, yes, of course, he goes and finds the one, leaving the 99. But all our sense of logic, especially in our culture of strategy and key performance indicators, says, of course not, no, no, no. Leaving 99 to search for one, what a sure way to lose more. It is possible that maybe in view, he's leaving him with a, a fellow shepherd, but we're not actually told that. It, it reminds me of when kids get a ball stuck in a tree and then they decide, oh, how am I going to get that down? Let's kick another ball at it to get the ball down. And then, you know, you know how it goes. The ball gets stuck up there as well. So there's two balls stuck in the tree. Then maybe they'll try their shoe, try their other shoe. And suddenly, instead of just one ball stuck in the tree, there's two balls and two shoes. Perhaps this parable is also intended to surprise us, as parables often do. And perhaps the man does leave 99 unattended on the mountains in search for that one. Three times it describes the sheep as wandering, going astray or wandering off. There's something active about this sheep wandering away. And yet, the loving and committed shepherd goes after the one to bring them back. Clearly, that one sheep is very important to him. And so when he finds it at last, there's great joy when he finds the sheep. That time I mentioned when I was looking for Zach at the playground, as the seconds ticked by and I still hadn't seen him, couldn't, couldn't locate him, they felt like hours. <laughs> I was desperate to find him again. And at last, across the grass, he's walking over to some play equipment that he'd played on before. And my distress, I see him, and my distress just melts into relief and joy as I run over and give him a big hug. It's similar for the sheep in verse 13. Have a look. And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. The wonderful joy to be had when one is found outweighs the joy of the 99 remaining and, and outweighs the joy of, outweighs any, any initial grief that he had initially. Now parables are used to give a, a spiritual meaning. What, what's the meaning here? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 14, the next verse, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is life and death. The wayward child of God is at risk of death and needs rescue. But it's more than just physical life and death. Their, their eternity is at stake. God is steadfast in his loving commitment to their eternal destiny. Not one of the souls in his care shall perish. Because if we actually take the little ones to be God's children who who believe in Jesus, 
then this will of God is not merely his will of desire, like we read elsewhere in the Bible, that he desires all men to be saved. But if this little one is one of his children, it's his sovereign will of decree. It's going to happen. He's going to make sure that that child of his is brought home safely. God's will is that he will not lose any that he has chosen. This is the assurance of salvation we can have that we've heard a bit about in Romans. Even if one of us begin to wander away, God will pursue us to ensure that we do not perish. We sing in in the song, In Christ Alone, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. We mustn't despise the little ones because every single one is precious in God's sight and it is his will that they shall not perish. Now let's have a think about what, it, what, what all this means for us. Well, firstly, if we believe in Jesus, we are the little ones, his children. We are the ones who are precious and treasured in his sight. So great is his steadfast love for us that if we were to go astray, he would pursue us like that determined shepherd. And as we just sung, we see his love demonstrated in Christ on the cross. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Cherish this reality, dear friends, that you are cherished by God and that he will not let you perish. But we're also called to imitate this. Ephesians 5 verse 1 says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as beloved children. And it goes on to say, Live a life of love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. So as little ones, as objects of God's great love, we ought to imitate his love, his concern. I've noticed some different ways that I'm becoming more like my dad as I grow older, and a lot of them I don't like. <laughs> but, but this year is a characteristic of our Heavenly Father that we ought to love and cherish and, and grow more in his likeness. Because God is not cold and calculating, strategically prioritizing how he spends his efforts. Such is his love for every individual. So great is his concern for every soul that he leaves the 99 to pursue the one. What's one out of a hundred, we might ask? One out of a hundred seems so insignificant. But to God, one out of a hundred is worth pursuing. Every single one is treasured by him. And so God's concern must be our concern. Now, obviously, we have limitations that God doesn't. We can't love everyone in the way that he does. But the message of this parable is that if one of our number is going astray, we ought to go 110% to treat it like an emergency, to attack it from every angle, to help them come back, to bring them back. So when, when someone hasn't been at church or home group for a while, do we make an effort to get in touch or do we just wait for them to reappear? Or perhaps when someone moves away, have we checked to see if they've found a new church to settle into? 
And it doesn't matter who it is. God cares for every single one. So we ought to care for every single one as well. Whether it's the quiet older person or the person who has really significant struggles with health. Or or if it's the naughty kid. Every single one is precious. We might be tempted to ignore them or, or ignore the quiet average ones because they seem to be going fine. You know, as the saying goes, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. But no, in God's economy, every single one is precious. Every single one deserves his loving care. So we ought to go after them as he does, to pursue the wayward. And there are lots of simple ways we can do this. Talk to the person who's standing alone at lunchtime. Ask your friend how their Christian walk is going. Walk around with the young parent at morning tea as they keep an eye on their kids so they have someone to talk to. Because their very souls could be at risk and that makes it worth, worth it to spend the effort to cut through the discomfort or awkwardness there might be Because whatever awkwardness or discomfort ever turns us off from caring for someone, pursuing them, we should remember that Jesus had a lot of awkward and uncomfortable situations. He never let that turn him off, saving souls and showing concern for people. So we should imitate him in his love. Well, at long last, on June 10th, 40 days after that plane crash, Mr. Petro, the Colombian president, said in a post on Twitter, a joy for the whole country. The four children who were lost in the Colombian jungle have appeared alive. Just imagine them arriving back home to their family. What great rejoicing there would be around the dinner table that night. But not only there, the whole country was rejoicing with them. That enormous search effort paid off. It was worth it because those kids were brought back home safe. And in a similar way, whenever one of God's children wanders away, God pursues them with great concern. And and then there's great rejoicing in heaven when they're brought back because every single one is precious to him. Let's thank God for his great loving concern. Our Father in heaven, you are the good shepherd and you love us with an unimaginable and marvelous love that took you, the Lord Jesus, all the way to the cross for us. And we thank you that you pursue us and you care for every single one. You don't have judgments like people often do about others being more valuable than, some being more valuable than others. So we thank you for your deep love for each one of us. And we pray that you'd help us to imitate it, to be beloved children who imitate your love. In Jesus' name, amen.